Welcome to Bai Yen, a podcast about the intersection between Taiwanese and American culture. I'm Joe. With me is Jack. Hello, I'm Jack. And Anna. Hello. Ryan's taking a week off. Yes. Why, I, why is I that? Ryan. <laughs> dab dab. <laughs> <laughs> As they say in Japanese, dab dab, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Ryan has, Ryan has something else he's up to today. Yeah. yeah. So we'll miss him, but we'll carry on anyways. Is it yeah. common... Because for, for Taiwanese, it's very common. Some, somebody fall in love, somebody dis- disappear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Also, oh. I think this is all over the world. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And even though they're not here, we're happy for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah It's like, yeah. good for you. Oh. Yeah. That's the best reason to disappear. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I feel so happy for Ryan. Yeah, me too. Mm. Mm. And he doesn't listen to these episodes, so we can say whatever we want. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh. a couple weeks ago, we, you know, it's been a while since we had an episode. Um, we've been busy. Our band did a performance at a local Japanese uh, culture sharing festival. Yes. And uh, that was awesome. But even more than that, you guys were on double duty that day. You you were sharing your Taiwanese culture with the world. Um, tell us about what you did. Not with the world, just with Saijo's people. <laughs> <laughs> All the world was there. I was actually surprised. Mm. There was African students there. Uh, yes. There were Palestinians there. Mm. There were Brazilians. I mean, Saijo is actually pretty international compared to a lot of parts of Hiroshima, I would say. Yeah, I think because of the university, because <laughs> they have many students there. Yeah, and we uh, this idea actually come from last year. We already did one time. We cook and deep fry the sweet potato bowl. Deep Yes, for, and, and go to the stands. But last year was totally disaster <laughs> yes like n- n- not many customer to come or something not uh, many customer is actually a good thing uh, <laughs> the food quality was so bad last year really <laughs> why what happened yeah. because uh if if for, for some audience already know the sweet potato bowl in taiwan it's need to be hollow and need to be uh, puffy Right. Yeah. yeah. So you, you deep fry a ball of sweet potato. Yeah. It needs to puff up yeah. and become hollow on the inside. Yes, yes, yes. The the puff up level decide how good quality your sweet potato bowl is. Mm. Yeah. And last year was totally didn't didn't work. Yeah, just like bread. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we just deep fry the sweet potato. Even it's Japanese things is tasty, but we think no, it is not the, the real sweet potato. Maybe bowl. they were just being polite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. What about this year? This year was perfect. Mm, yeah. Mm. I think we sell like I don't know, two hundred serves. Wow. Yeah. And uh we, we got many positive feedback. I think maybe those Negative feedback not go, come to our ears. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... No, people really liked them. I, I saw the stand. I helped out for a little bit. Yes. I did some uh, Taiwanese quizzes with the customers <laughs> yes. of Taiwanese culture, which was fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, pe- it was popular. Like yeah. you guys had a wait. There were people waiting 20 minutes to get their sweet potato ball. Jack yes. looked more stressed than I've oh ever my. seen him in his life. He's in the back <laughs> frying frantically. Yeah. To keep up with the demand, it yeah. was it was super popular. Yeah, mm. because we only use a small pot, so every time can only prepare like six serves. So that was very slow, but we have no other choice. Mm. Yeah, maybe next time we can use a big pot. Will yes. there be a next time? Yeah. Are you going to do it again? <laughs> I don't know. I'm super tired. <laughs> but Jack is excited. Jack thinks think how to uh, uh-huh. make the bigger business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, expand. <laughs> yeah, I think the uh, if we can handle the 
food already. Maybe we we can consider how to you know do it more, uh, big value.、Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's very super happy to see your customer eating your food and give you some good feedback. Yeah, it's a good feeling, right? Yeah, we really liked the tea as well. My wife wants to import it from Taiwan. What kind of tea was that? Uh, it's Dong Donggua Cha. Hmm. Tong Tongga. Just the kind of melon tea, winter melon.、Mm. <laughs> We call it winter melon,、uh. and、uh, it's usually it's only I think only brew in Taiwan.、Uh, For no, 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 no. My wife had never no, heard no. of it, or she said that they they consume it, but not in tea form. They've never、yeah. seen a tea yeah, made out、yeah. of it. So I think that's unique.、Mm. Uh, because before they think that melons. Uh, the flavor would be bitter, so many people come to us and say, "Oh, is this the bitter tea or something?" We say, "No, no, no! It's just sweet because ma- put many sugar inside." <laughs> <laughs> That's the secret. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.、Yes. Because、uh, in Taiwan, the winter melon tea always drink like that, super、uh, sweet.、Uh, it's always connect to sweet. So when we think about this drink, it's always sweet.、Uh, so we didn't realize it's unique for foreign people. Huh? Yeah.、Uh, A good piece、yeah. of Taiwanese culture to share with all the international community. Yeah, and yeah. also many students,、uh, Hiroshima University student, come and they say because many of them are Chinese. They say before this event, they already noticed like there will be two because also、uh, another Taiwanese stand also also sh-、uh, selling some food. They already noticed there are two、uh, Taiwanese food stand will happen. In that festival, so in that、uh, line group, they they were very excited and said, "I want to go! I want to go!" Yeah, really, they were looking forward to it. Yeah,、mm. that's awesome. Yeah,、mm. and the, um, I also sup、uh, I also surprised for the like restriction about the food quality we need to provide. Oh,、uh, the festival itself, they had rules and regulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They need some like special certifications, like if、uh, you are the cooker. And also, what where did you prepare for your food? And you need to keep your food sample for around two weeks after the event because some people maybe get the food、uh, poison, so they will need to you to keep the sample to ensure your food is no problem. Wow.、Um, and I think、uh, because we need to use fire, so every people need to prepare their own fire extinguisher, and at that day also have the、yeah. fire truck there. To stand by. Wow!、Uh, so they're very well prepared.、Mm. Yeah, I thought the event was run extremely well. I mean, they had professional sound technicians for us on stage. <laughs> yes. They had,、um, you know, lots of space, lots of extra police officers in the area.、Uh, not too long before that, they'd done the sake matsuri, the festival for drinking sake,、mm. and they had so many extra police officers around because people, there's drunk people everywhere. So they really seemed to do events well in Japan, and particularly when it comes to food. Cleanliness and quality—they're excellent at that. I agree. It's really, really nice to know that they're looking out for、uh, people not to get food poisoned.、Mm. Yeah, I think this、uh, must be this festival we attend. Maybe use a lot of ta-、uh, tax money. I think this <laughs> festival is not、uh, profitable. No, no. Yeah, because for the true、uh, festival, those、uh, festival have like ten hundreds of thousands、uh, stands. I think they will cost a lot of money. If you need want to like sell food there, you need to pay a lot. But for this time, we only pay very few money. I think thousand yen. 
Mm. And also they give us many gifts. Yeah, right? they gave us a, a Okonomiyaki sauce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, I think it's totally non-profitable uh. festival for them. <laughs> well, yeah, no, you're right. It's definitely not profitable. It definitely costs them some money. Mm. I don't think a ton, right? They had to hire sound technicians. They had to hire yeah. so, a little bit of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's worth it for them? What's, what, what do they get out of it? What's the point of this? I think they... Actually, I think Japan support the foreign community a lot, at least more than Taiwan. Like they have like free Japanese class and they have the many like introduction how how to live the life here. And I think their job is to, you know, welcome the foreign people because uh, in Saijo, many, many foreign people coming for job. So I think they, there's no like extra benefit for them. But uh, they can like create a good environment for foreign people. Yeah, and that's something really intangible, right? It's not mm. like they're going to see dollars appear mm. in their budgets because of this. But actually, fostering community yeah. in the place where you live is really important. It's not just for the foreign residents either; it's for the Japanese residents too. Mm. You know, we met lots of Japanese people that day who live in Saijo. They got to come up and meet us and see, oh, these foreigners who I hear speaking some other language in the mall—they're actually really friendly people, and they have. A culture they want to share with us and i felt like it's a great great yeah. cultural exchange i had a lot of fun yeah 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 and also they they have some africa dance also mm. perform at the day i think it's super like international yeah yeah and we performed a taiwanese rap uh, yeah <laughs> by mc hot dog mc, hot dog. M- MC jack yeah perfect. tore up the stage perfect yeah, you had a great performance. Yeah, I don't think anyone had ever heard Taiwanese rap before, but I saw little kids dancing. I saw people nodding their heads in the background. Uh, it was awesome. Yeah, mm. it's so good experience. Mm. Yeah, speaking of uh, cross-cultural experiences, maybe you guys heard Xi Jinping made a visit to the U.S. recently? Yeah. Have you guys heard about this, and what did you think? I think it's good. Uh, I think Japan, uh, no, sorry, China and United States become friends again. It's a good news for this world mm. because originally we, we are so afraid of new Cold War will come and uh, nobody wants that. Yeah. And actually before, before COVID or before the uh, 2020, I think Taiwan doesn't have so much like focus spotlight on the international stage. But uh, after 2020, somehow we become like everyone is talking about Taiwan. And before, before this happened, we are get used to like a lot of time. I think United States was uh, Obama, Obama president. And he is very pro-China in my perspective. And I think Taiwanese is you get used to it. Like, okay, we stay low profile and we earn our money and nobody notices it. It is okay, but we earn our money. <laughs> <laughs> and now I think maybe we'll slightly shift. Like we got more attention, but still we can, if uh, China and United States become good friends again, like we can also stay low profile and earn big money again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you're hoping for? That's what you want? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think... Uh, yeah, because now, uh, like in the chip industry, everyone is saying that we need to have like China plus one or Taiwan plus one. We need to have multiple, like, uh, uh, how to say, capacity. Like, I want to have capacity, the, the production capacity in United States or in Japan or in Europe. So now ev- the, the world is like 
the、uh, globalization again. But if、uh, United States and China keep their relationship back, I think we can have a prosper, prosper, uh, future.、Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I I thought of a weird hypothetical question I wanted to ask you yesterday.、Yeah. In a worst case scenario, let's say that China did military militarily invade Taiwan, what would you guys want to happen? Would you want American warships to come in and protect Taiwan? Would you want just to maintain peace and maybe allow China to take over Taiwan? Like, what is the best case scenario in your mind if if that if that horrible situation ever actually happened? Oh,、uh, I for I think the the most hardcore Taiwan independent supporter they hope the the day China invade Taiwan is the day we build our own country. Yeah, that is the most hard hardcore, most the, extreme. Yeah, the the Taiwan independent supporters. And for me, I think we don't have much like examples. I think in the past few years, only Ukraine and Afghanistan. I hope we are not Afghanistan. <laughs> I know it's it's unthinkable, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it it just like give up, and the leadership just collapse, and then people run, and then like take the 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 China maybe take over Taiwan's、uh, control in couple weeks. That that will be un unthinkable, unimaginable for me. Yeah, but if you ask me, what do I ex expect? Not just expect. What would you want to happen? Because for me,、uh -huh. that's a nightmare scenario—a scenario、yeah. where the pressure is put on the United States to have some kind of response, and we're、mm -hmm. looking at a potential war between the two largest, most powerful countries on the planet. Like that could be the end of all human civilization, <laughs> right?、Yes. There's nothing more terrifying than that.、Mm. Um, for for me, I hope it can. The、uh, the first of all is Taiwan can stand the first attack, maybe a couple weeks, and then. The second one is that I also hope this can restrict in a region conflict, like、uh, maybe Japan and Australia and Philippines sounds ah、uh, ally can 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 involve and support us. And United States maybe at a stage two, <laughs> because if United States involved directly, that is yeah World War Three, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and、uh, I yeah I hope it it can end soon and not consume too much. Human's life, yeah.、Mm. What What about you, Anna?、Mm, yeah, I also think for me, in my imagination, the best scenario maybe is we have the self defense ability. Maybe in a couple days or couple weeks until、uh, our voice can speak out and someone can support us.、Huh? I think most important is a lot time. I hope. The Taiwan president is can can show his or hers leadership,、mm. and like Ukraine's president、uh, Zelensky, yeah,、uh. and、uh, sh like leading Taiwanese people through the difficult time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're all hoping that never happens. But、mm. I was just curious, like from your guys' perspective, you know, what what would be what you would want at that point?、Um, but I think we're looking at a, a hopefully changing situation now, where that's、mm. much less likely. Right, Xi Jinping goes to the U.S. to visit. He's kind of signaling a reopening between the two countries. He's warming to American business interests. Right, there have been all kinds of agreements made between our governments.、Um, on the U.S.'s side,、uh, 
uh, we wanted restriction over the chemicals used to make fentanyl. Yeah. He agreed, yeah. right? So now yeah. he's putting pressure on chemical suppliers. I mean, China has the world's biggest chemical industry, mm. and he's putting pressure on their suppliers to limit those drugs that are used to create fentanyl because fentanyl is an absolutely devastating epidemic in the United States right now. It's killing thousands and thousands of people. Mm. Um, it's It's a big, big issue for us. And as we've talked about history before, I find it ironic that it was the British and the Americans, mostly the British, but also the Americans and the French pushing opium on the Chinese in the 1800s. And now it's China supplying fentanyl back to the U.S. So it's kind of like it's come full circle. <laughs> but hopefully that's an issue that's uh, going to see some improvement. And on China's side, they want easing of the trade restrictions. Mm. Um, you know, when it comes to chips in particular, mm. that's a situation I don't fully understand. Do you understand about the limitation on chips in China? Yeah, I think uh, because the United States uh, sanctioned they uh, restrict those uh, like chip uh, equipment uh, to import into China. So I think their uh, foundry, factory, the yield, the production uh, yield is super low. So like dragging their company's uh, revenue. So I heard the biggest uh, company, mm. there's one, one biggest uh, chip makers in China and their revenue is like decreasing. I I don't know fifty or eighty percent. Yeah, very wow. huge. And I think after this uh United States and and China's leadership meeting, I think not not big change. I think United States didn't like didn't saying they will they will relax. Yeah, I didn't see any relaxing of the trade restrictions there. But I've heard that China is having some success bypassing those restrictions that they're getting mm. a hold of the materials they need through other yeah. means. Yeah. And so they're kind of working around it anyways, but it's definitely been impactful. Um, a lot of what I've read has said the number one motivation for this opening is China's desire for foreign investment capital. Um, you know, foreign capital has been running away from China in recent years because of, first of all, the extreme COVID lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Second of all, China had been raiding the offices and arresting um, foreign executives and companies. I mean, they've really come down hard in a number of businesses. They said they're concerned about you know piracy and security concerns, but China took a lot of actions that really scared you know foreign investment firms. Just starting to think China's not a good place to do business mm. because they have no security under law that they will be protected. Uh, and now that the Chinese economy is struggling with all their all their issues when it comes to especially the housing market and lots of other industries in China, in addition to their demographic challenges of an aging population, um, you know, it, it seems like that's really the thing that's bringing China to the table. You know, it was foreign investment that made modern China, all the manufacturing that flooded into the country, all the companies that wanted access to the world's biggest market, you know, saw dollar signs. And that's kind of what China has built this huge surge in the 21st century um, on, is foreign investment. And when that started to leak away, you kind of saw... Um, weakness exposed of the yeah. CCP and everyone's saying that's what's it's not that this the goodness of their hearts they suddenly decided they want to be friends with America <laughs> it's they need foreign investment capital and America is the place to get it yeah and but but still United States businessmen still want like eager to do oh, of course they do <laughs> China. of course they do world's biggest market right yeah, who, who I, doesn't want I heard the the the, uh, the dinner you can like like eating dinner together with Xi Jinping the same table price will be 40,000 US dollar. 
Yeah, that's oh my god, trust eat one dinner. And I would pay it. I wish I had forty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd love to sit down and meet the guy. I think he's a fascinating person. Mm. Um, you know, there was a lot of warm exchanges between the two governments. Like Xi Jinping was talking about when he went and lived with his family in Iowa, um, and that's to him that's America. You know, he has a, he had a really close relationship with his family who um, oh. he went and stayed with there, yeah. and he's visited them throughout the years. So he had this really positive experience in Ohio, mm. of all places. Um, and they, they were talking about back in World War II when uh, American jet fighters were fighting. To, this, all this different stuff got brought up of trying to remind ourselves of all the things we have in common and all the times in history when we've been allies. Um, Xi Jinping, I think, invited something like 10,000 American young students to come do homestays in China because, you know, the U.S. government had put out warnings about travel to China saying mm-hmm. we cannot promise your security if you go over there. I mean, even high you know, powered, rich executives were being seized by the Chinese government. So it seems like a thawing, we call it, when when things warm back up and improvement in relations. And everyone can agree that's good. Yeah, but uh, but still, uh, the stock ma- market, they, they don't buy it. <laughs> yeah, I think in, in China stock, the, the second day of the meeting, the, it like dropping like 5%. And also Alibaba. They they have some like bad news recently. One is the chip sanction didn't didn't relax, and second one is the new uh, uh company business regroup didn't go well. So also collapsed a lot. And uh, I think uh from the Twitter because Twitter have many Chinese like posting on on it. From that point of view, it reminds me about the the book nineteen eighty four. That is like. The uh the country actually can control how people thinking. What what you are saying is that the uh, China United States always good friend from World War Two because the in World War Two United States helped China to fight the evil Japanese and uh, the evil the the yeah that that we 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 are not we are United States and China are good <laughs> ally, yeah. But things from that, like these decades in China's propaganda is like China need to like stand up and fight the evil United States. The United States used their capital to like kid, kid, kidnap Earth. And uh, like we, we are, we are like enough is enough. Something mm. like that. This decade is like that. So, but the, after, after the meeting, the, the media start to, like post again, like we are good friends. This forty years, nothing trend. We always good friend. <laughs> you you can see how country want to like control the people's mind. Yeah, but, they just turn the message like that, and everyone's yeah. supposed to go along with it and pretend like the last ten years didn't happen. And also, people will buy it. People, it, it, it's it works. It works. It works. I think people, people usually like. Also, Taiwanese people, if something like change dramatically. We will find our way, our comfortable way to accept that message, no matter how ridiculous it is. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it depends on timing, but we are good friends. We're always good friends. Yeah, media is extremely powerful yeah. in shaping the thought of the nation. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe because people can, Chinese people can benefit from this, mm. can get more booking because their economics really need some recovery yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, a, a bunch of um, CEOs in China have disappeared. Have you guys oh. heard about this? Mm. Yeah, there's been a whole bunch of tech uh, and uh, industrial leaders who have just disappeared. 
and everyone's assuming it was over um, basically bribery or them being dirty. Mm. And, you know, Xi Jinping has a big um, reputation in China as being an anti-corruption politician. You know, that's been how he kind of rose to power was that he had a really good record Mm. in the provinces where um, he was in charge of rooting out corruption and actually being an, an honest politician, which is rare. I'm not saying I think everything about the guy is great, but that's his, that's his reputation in China. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, their economic problems are many-fold. It's not just one thing, right? It's a bunch of different things all coming together in China right now, creating this situation where um, they want to open back up to foreign investment and foreign capital. Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the sanction from the United States also not so like hundred cannot hundred percent cut off the supply supply of the semiconductor equipment. For example, I think Taiwan also play a role inside of it because in uh early stage when China opening, actually Taiwan's businessmen bring the capital and technique and the equipment into China and help them not not only help them, they also like help Taiwan businessmen earn big money. But uh, that is the kind of the 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 uh complete situation makes the sanction more difficult and makes the uh the friendship between country and country more complicated. I believe so. Well, yeah, and then there's two other layers to it too. There's BRICS. Yeah, you know about BRICS, B R I C S. The five countries. Yeah, that yeah. are coming together to mm-hmm. get off the American dollar. Yeah. Um, you know, China's the biggest of those countries making that effort, Russia, mm. um, Brazil, India, and uh, de- basically debasing the American, you know, getting off the American dollar is going to have huge, it's, it's kind of like economic war, essentially. Mm. Mm. Um, so that's another big issue between U.S. and China. And then the biggest issue, I think, of all that I don't hear anyone talk about is energy independence. I think that's the biggest global strategic issue between our two countries, which is that if for some reason U.S. and China did have a conflict, the U.S. can completely cut off China's energy supply Mm. right now. Because if you look at where the ships come in that bring, you know, China is a net importer of energy big time. They don't have a lot of national resources when it comes to energy production. So they count on other countries to bring it in. And there's one little strait, I think the Strait of Malacca, is it? where all the ships have to pass through and the United States Navy has a stranglehold over that. They could basically, because of their alliance with countries in that area, military bases, naval assets, they could just turn off the taps and China oil supplies would dry up and oil is what basically, you know, engines both the economy and the military. Mm -hmm. So that has been what has sent China on this route of the Belt and Road Initiative, which we've talked about, where they're going into other countries and trying to build infrastructure and make strategic alliances to create a new funnel of energy that can surpass this American stranglehold Mm -hmm. um, that could be put in place. So, yeah, yeah, there's all these other issues that, you know, everyone's talking nice and Mm -hmm. trying to make friends, which is good. We're all happy about that. We all don't want war. We all want international cooperation. Mm. But at the same time, while people are shaking hands and having expensive dinners, they're also on the other side kind of waging a cold war against each other. So we'll see if actual change happens in those areas when it comes to BRICS, when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative, um, when it comes to the the chip embargo. You know, those are where the rubber really meets the road of American-Chinese relations, I think. So we'll see. I'm also very curious how does the... Uh, North Korea and Russia's reaction about this meeting because I don't see much. 
And I think for them, China is a like maybe a big brother or big partner. And now your big partner going to shake hand with United States. <laughs> North Korea, I don't know too much about how they perceive it, but Russia, I can tell you that Russia and China are actually two of the world's biggest rivals. They might be working together right now, but that's only because they have no well, because Russia has no other option, and China is <laughs> taking advantage of that. Ah,、uh, yeah, yeah. Right, China is getting tons of cheap oil and gas. Yes. At discounted prices, and but、uh, China and Russia have a bunch of、um, territory disputes that go back、mm-hmm. centuries. You know, areas that each say belongs to them, and so yeah, I, I think Russia is not surprised. Russia knows that China is not their big brother. <laughs> China is maybe their biggest rival, but right now、mm. it's you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. No choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No choice. <laughs> you know, all of this reminds me a lot of、uh. the game Risk. Have you got? Do you guys ever play the board game Risk? No, it's this board game, classic American board game, where you have armies all over the world, and you roll dice and you attack each other and take over each other's territories, and you play with a bunch of friends, a bunch of people. And I play this game online.、Uh-huh. And when you play with good players, the first thing they do is you make alliances with everybody.、Oh. You say, "I am your friend. Let's be friends. Let's work together."、Mm-hmm. But even though you say that, nobody believes it. <laughs> and when the time comes when your self-interest and their self-interest go in different directions, that friendship means nothing. Oh. Usually, right? Sometimes it's rare. Sometimes you do meet other players who will actually work with you, or if they have a choice between stabbing you in the back and stabbing someone else, and you've been a good friend, maybe they will choose you. So、mm. diplomacy does work sometimes, but all this handshaking and dinner having to me looks a lot like a, a risk friends request. And also interesting to see Elon Musk or Mark. Mark Zuckerberg, or those like、uh, Blackstone, BlackRock, yeah, yeah, Apple, yeah, yeah, yeah. all yeah. the biggest country、Sitting、companies at the same table. I think there's no politician in United States who can let them sit in the same table. <laughs> no, <laughs> Xi Jinping did it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's very sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, right? I mean, it's like you said, people want access. Those these these companies want access to those markets. Yeah, it's they. You know, it's a balance between the government and the、mm-hmm. companies. How much、uh, security can they give these companies that will allow you to do business here? Yeah, and、uh, yeah.、Hmm. You also remind me of big、mm. news recently happened in Taiwan,、mm-hmm. uh, because、uh, last January is our. The election is coming for our president, and recently, before we have uh the mainly three party, mainly is two, two but there's one new third party, yeah, new star, uh、yeah. also <laughs> want to join the uh presidency or something. Really? Yeah, yeah, the candidate, and the, but because uh three uh two 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 party now the uh poll is lower compared to the DDP, so. Now they start to cooperate, and before the third party, because it it is just a new build party and it's more smaller. His most famous word is the DDP and KNT. They are garbage.、Uh, yeah, <laughs> the 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 two main party they are yeah, all garbage. Yeah, yeah, so that's why I need me because I'm a third party. And but now because their poll rate is very low, so he decided to join one of the big party <laughs> to win, try to win the election. He joined、yeah. one of the trash parties. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see like before they are like, oh, I tried so hard, like struggling, and then with no choice, so I need to join this because I we need to win. How is his platform different from those two parties? What sets him apart from other politicians? Anything? Anything different? Uh, I think he 
he the leader of the third party always behave like he's very smart and he he his level is way beyond these two parties like uh, these two parties are dirty and corruption and uh, something and uh, only talking about the uh only talking about independent or union with China, and he can provide more. He he can be friend of China and United States at the same time, and he can provide the like true execution prosperity future to to the how? people. Does he say how? No, <laughs> no. of course not. Politicians they just make a bunch of big <laughs> empty promises, a yeah. bunch of big talk, yeah, and then they get the job and they find out that it's more difficult than they thought. Yeah, mm-hmm. and in the uh, press uh, shake hand meeting. Like the 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 third party leader was like shaking hand with the very old party leader, and they were enemy before. So the 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 old party's leader was like saying, "Are uh, you you never see about these days coming, right?" He <laughs> 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 was like very awkward. Yeah, I didn't see this. <laughs> <laughs> well, he must have some following if they're if they want him to join their party, right? Yeah. There must be a reason and what he's saying must resonate because that sounds like a good message to give Taiwanese voters. Mm. People who want exactly what you want. They want not an escalation of the conflict with, you know, China. They want to find some way to create a partnership with China and the US and everyone and mm. like you said, do what Taiwanese do best, make money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like Taiwanese businessmen always like very eager about China's market, and everyone's talking about that. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it's going to be really, really curious what happens with elections in these next couple of years, both in the U.S. and Taiwan. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to the U.S. election. <laughs> it's not going to be fun. Did you see uh, the reporters ask Biden? Uh, Biden had in speeches previously referred to Xi Jinping as a dictator. Yeah, and they asked him. Uh, you've previously called him a dictator. Do you still think he's a dictator? Mm. And Biden goes, well, yeah, he's a dictator. <laughs> he's, like, he's just like, and they showed reactions of other politicians and business leaders in the in the crowd. And they're like, oh, Joe, what, what are you doing, man? I saw that video. But I think, yeah. I, I think it, it would be ridiculous for him to say anything else. Huh. Like, how could you say a few months ago, yeah, he's a dictator. And then now because of this one meeting, like, no, he's not a dictator anymore. We're friends. Yeah. Like, whether you're friends or not, it does not change reality. I think he gave a good answer, an honest yeah. answer. Like, yeah, he's a dictator. Yeah. He's saying he's, they have a different. Si-. Then he goes on to say they have a different system of government over there. Communism, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And we, we call Joe Biden is a old guy uh, strategy. He always says something like very direct, and if not too direct, he he will say, "Oh, I'm old, and my my mind is not clear." <laughs> <laughs> but I think that is what he truly think. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's all hope that positive things come out of this meeting. Personally, it makes me happy, even though I'm skeptical. I have reservations. I want to see what happens. It's good news. Yeah. I think it's good news for everybody. Everybody wants to see uh, China and the U.S. become you know better allies and partners. So we'll see. Yeah, Let's and after uh, Xi Jinping said that uh, we like China doesn't have like plan to attack Taiwan in recent years. After that sentence, he said that he said, he that. said that. Yeah, he said that. I'm pretty sure he's been saying the opposite for like a decade. Oh uh, yeah, true. He's been saying you know true. unequivocally Taiwan is uh-huh. part of China. Mm-hmm. We will reincorporate it. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time, yes, right? Yes. But he said that we don't have the plan to invade military temporarily yeah temporarily <laughs> in these couple years and oh, af- oh. A- after that sentence the you know the the foreign capital start to 
invest like, Taiwan, invest Taiwan, Taiwan stock market. Stock really? Market yeah. Rising. rising. And we were like, naive foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> but we are welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll take, you'll take the investment, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. You know, th- this is why I love studying history because you just see things keep repeating themselves. And the more I study about Chinese history, the more I start to understand the dynamics in the country and the cycles that they go through. Mm. It's like uh, a lot of the pressure in China comes from the Lao Baixing, mm. the average person on the street, which I just learned means the old hundred names. I didn't know that's what Lao Baixing meant. Mm. Oh, The old hundred names, because back in Imperial China, there were about a hundred big main clans. Oh. And each clan would have, you know, their last name, their family name. And so yes. that's what Lao Baixing means. The, the average person on the street or literally the old hundred names. Mm. And oh. they're the ones who kind of, um, have dictated a lot of the course of Chinese history when things get bad. When things get economically so bad for the common person in China that they consider rising up, that's been a big motivator of the big changes throughout Chinese history. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it happened, of course, in the Communist Revolution, um, but that wasn't the first time and it's not the last. And here we see in present day where Chinese foreign relations are being influenced by their domestic market at home. If they, that's kind of been, it seems like to me, the agreement between the average person in China and the Communist Party, which is, okay, you, as long as you, you make us money, we will accept all this loss of freedom, loss of control. You know, we'll, we'll put up with a lot of the you know, problems mm. that are created. But um, as soon as we stop making money, that's when there's going to be political problems. Yeah. I also kind of surprised that the Chinese citizens still have the power to affect government. Do, they kind of do. Kind of. I think maybe less than before. Uh-huh. I think China was so effective in clamping down on uh, any potential of revolution. But of course, there's still pressure. Yeah. Uh, like like last year, the, the white paper revolution kind of false not not only the white paper revolution but also lockdown is not sustainable but at least the government like like relaxed the lockdown and also like like this year we i thought china government doesn't care about economy they can sacrifice all the economy just to achieve the political like goal but we saw the the xi jinping go and have a handshake with biden so i think that's bring us some hope bring me some hope yeah yeah Yeah. it's not like they can just do whatever they want right i mean there were people demonstrating in the streets when evergrande collapsed all these people lost their all of their personal savings people lost their homes Mm. um vast swaths of the economy being destroyed and the world economy has the potential to be seriously affected by these big fallouts in the japanese and i'm sorry in the chinese housing markets so yeah yeah he at the end of the day he still does have to keep the people happy mm. or else, you know, political instability becomes real. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, people forget that they are the majority and at the end of the day, they hold the power. It's easy to feel as an average person as if there's nothing you can do about this stuff. But, uh, yeah, they, they are affecting political change. It's true. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's... Uh, how are we doing on time? Do we have enough time for a short history section? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, so that's what today's history section's about. Um, if you remember... Do you remember where we were last time? Anna. What happened last time in Joe's History of China Part 3? This is the test. I forget. You forget. <laughs> Jack. Jack, o- opium war. Save opium us. War. Yeah. Yes, opium that's war. right. What? Yeah. Opium war, I also remember. But uh, you don't know what's, what's the end. What, what's the oh, end? Oh, okay. So uh, you remember there was the opium war, right? Yeah. And how did the opium war end? Uh, 
What's the last rule? Basically, a lot of concept. <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry. I, I, I'm just joking with you about a test. It's been a long time since we did a podcast, so yeah. you're excused. But uh, just to remind you and our listeners, um, the end of the Opium War was basically the defeat of um, the Chinese. They ended up caving and giving in to all of the British and American and French demands. They ceded control over the Kowloon Peninsula, Hong Kong. And then also my source said Taiwan, but I've, I've looked into that. I haven't been able to find other sources that say that Taiwan no, I control Taiwan went over. Maybe, ac- maybe they got access. Maybe. Yeah, but my source that I used originally is the only one I've heard say that. So maybe that's not accurate. Mm. Um, but in any case, yeah, at the very least access to Taiwan. Uh, and a bunch of trade concessions, millions of tales of silver. Uh, yeah, just basically total capitulation. And that was where we left off last time. Yeah, and just uh, supply one more point. The second opium war you mentioned, actually in our historic book, we call it British and French uh, military invade. Oh. Yeah, we call it that way. And you, you also mentioned it burned down one garden in Beijing. Yeah, an imperial, yeah. An imperial palace. Imperial Paris. That was the first time it burned. <laughs> and there was a second time it's been burned by like eight countries military oh my gosh yeah 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 this is a big symbol in china yeah they, they still keep it just for memorize the humiliation wow yeah it's a powerful symbol mm. um and it's pretty messed up you know this this period of history like yes china wasn't being super awesome to everyone but at the end of the day all they wanted was to kind of be left alone you know they didn't want all this foreign trade, they didn't want all this foreign intervention, and they kind of didn't realize how powerful the Western countries were, but this was their rude awakening. Mm. And the question is, you know, the same thing happened to Japan, and Japan ended up modernizing very rapidly Mm. and um, rising technologically to the level of the foreign countries. But with China, things kind of took a different path. Um, And today, what I'm going to talk about is um, popular uprisings in China. So we're looking at the period from around 1840 to 1860, and at that time, and for the last thousands of years, um, rural village clans, we talked about the Lao Beijing, the hundred old names, they were kind of the cement of Chinese society, right? In the local areas, in the villages, those clans were kind of the power brokers of the area. And they were the ones who uh, interfaced basically with uh, the magistrates who were appointed to the different areas by um, the emperor, right? Um so these in these clans, a lot of times, the richer people among them would hold something like 70 to 80% of all the land in the village. So land was, you know, there were the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. And the rich held a huge percentage of all the land and all the property and the poor had very little. Um, the average farmer, something like more than 50% of their income would go to the landlords. Mm-hmm. So you're working on land you don't own. And most of what you're working for is going to these rich nobles. And this is a, another cycle in Chinese history that happened a lot, which is resentment of the ruling class, the, the bourgeoisie, the landowners, the, the rich people um, end up pressing the, the common people so hard that finally they explode in an eruption of violence and revolution. And that was what started happening in the 1840s. Um, basically, these landlords would act as dispute mediators they would you know solve problems if clans were fighting um they were money lenders and they were also tax mediators because the tax system was very complicated but they would get involved and they would use their relationships with the imperial appointees to the area to help solve tax problems for the average people um 
So rural administration was delegated to magistrates who were recruited from the civil servants. Remember, we talked about civil servants in China had to take a test. Um, China had the world's most robust civil service program at that time in history. And um, these people were essentially the magistrates that were appointed to, to an area were kind of like little mini emperors. Within that area, they had total power. And their ability to move up to get appointed to a better area or to move up in the uh, imperial government was based on a few things. One is keeping peace in their area. Two is having a big harvest, essentially. Um, those those are the, the two biggest things that they had to accomplish in order to, um, you know, to move along in their career. Um, but they had lots of people working for them, the, all these underlings who were supporting them. And these people were famous for taking advantage of the average Chinese farmer, uh, you know, constantly you know, using corruption and bribes to squeeze as much money out of the average person as possible. And so remember, we have this big pressure coming in from the outside where commercial interests from Europe and the Americas are gaining concessions, um, you know, spreading opium throughout China, uh, opening up ports, opening up trade, siphoning silver out of China. So that already creates a lot of pressure on the government. And that pressure kind of funnels down to the average person. It's not only the foreign intervention that's causing problems, but also we talked about the population boom that happened in China. Um, that really taxed their ability to produce enough rice. And the worsening economic situation just made things, you know, it trickles downhill. It starts at the top and it goes down to the average people. So essentially from those dual problems of, you know, Western commercial penetration and corruption within the civil service, um, life was getting worse and worse and worse for the average person in a lot of areas of China. And then we have the third added uh, pressure, which was natural disaster. Mm. The Yangtze River, uh, River flooded. It destroyed a bunch of dams. And you remember that keeping their waterworks in good condition is a big part of keeping the rice growing and keeping people happy and fed and you know the source of most of their income. And the the government didn't respond very quickly. They kind of were slow to do anything about it. And you've got, you know, thousands, maybe millions of people starving to death over the destruction of these dams and the government doing nothing about it. And this resulted in the, the Manchu government at this time, remember. So this resulted in the what's called the Nian Rebellion. You ever heard of that? It lasted 15 years. It mm -hmm. engulfed 16 different provinces in China. Mm -hmm. And essentially, they started raiding merchants, sacking the houses of landlords, executing gentry and district officers, and opening prison gates. And this was kind of a Robin Hood scenario. You, haven't, you ever heard of Robin Hood? Yes. Famous um, character in British story where he robs from the rich and gives to the poor. Well, that's what they were doing. They were distributing food amongst the local people and fighting against the rich. Oh, Taiping. Uh, Taiping is the one we're going to talk about next. Oh. That's a separate rebellion. This was kind of before that. Uh -huh. and, and it's interesting, too, history repeating itself, right? This is very similar to the same thing we're going to work our way up to, which is the communist revolution. Mm. Same kind of thing where they're robbing from the rich, giving to the poor. And um, yeah, 16 different provinces included in this rebellion. They had a they had a banner and a flag that said, kill the rich, kill the officials, spare the poor. Oh. But the problem was, was that they weren't that well organized, mm -hmm. even though they had, you know, uh, a good number of recruits and over a large area they had control. Things kind of fell apart 
just because they were, you know, really a bunch of small groups all kind of working under the same banner, but not really coordinating themselves well enough to stand up to the Imperial Army. So eventually that rebellion was crushed. Oh. But then the next bigger rebellion came along after that, and that's the Taiping Rebellion. Mm. So you guys have heard of that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you know about the Taiping Rebellion? Uh, I've seen some similar background, but they're more focused on the foreign foreign people, foreign ambassador or something. And the Qing Dynasty, the government, they decide to use it to against the foreign power. And that caused the, the war following. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The who, you, who you still remember? <laughs> I, I remember? <laughs> no, I only remember the name. I don't know. <laughs> what did they do? Okay. Well, <laughs> well, essentially, and I didn't know this either. Okay. So this is this is all stuff I'm learning as well. I had read it before, but I forgot. It's hard to remember this stuff. Yeah. Um, that's why it's good to review. So essentially, this was caused by the impoverishment of the Lao Baixing in southwest China, uh, Guangdong and Guangxi provinces. Uh-huh. And there was a huge unemployment crisis that hit the coastal ports in Canton. Um, Canton lost its status as the exclusive port for foreign commerce. So the opening of all these, it used to be the only port where you know foreign traders could come in and do business. But with the pressure from these um, European and American powers, all other ports were open. So suddenly all these people in that port lost their jobs. Um, we're talking about you know a lot of dock workers, um, coolies, various other, you know, kind of, um, blue collar type of workers, you know, the average people. And so they had a huge unemployment crisis. There was no money, no jobs. People were starving to death. And that created the perfect scenario for this guy named Hong Xu Chuang. Yes, Hong Xiu Chen. Hong Xiu Chen, thank you. Uh, what do you know about him? I just described that's all i know his name that, that's, that's more than me and anna knew <laughs> but he's an interesting character so he had taken the imperial civil service exam four times and failed four times Ooh. and then after the fourth time of failing he had a nervous breakdown huh. and started having visions yeah, yeah and in these visions an old woman appeared to him and told him you are the son of god <laughs> And he was influenced by Christian missionaries who were active in China. And he decided, hey, I am Jesus Christ's brother. <laughs> Which yes. is pretty wild. This is this story already to me is fascinating. <laughs> uh, and so he's like... You mean Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ's brother is a Chinese? <laughs> I mean, why not, right? Jesus Christ is not for any one country, right? It's supposed to be global. But at this time, yeah. uh, I, I was totally unprepared when I was looking over the material to find Jesus Christ's brother. Born in Canton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you why know, not? <laughs> uh, why not? Exactly. Why not? But I didn't realize that Christian thought had penetrated China to the degree that something like this could happen. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. And you know, in the West, one of the revolutionary parts of Christian ideology was that you know, kind of equality. You know, oh. that all oh. all people are God's children, and of course, it didn't always get realized totally, but you know. Christianity was revolutionary in the West. It's one of the first religions that said, you know, everyone's the same under God's eyes. Um, you know, if you, you know, there's this famous part where a rich man asked Jesus how to get into heaven. He says, give away everything you have. So it was an uncommon religion that was actually kind of um, more egalitarian than a lot of the previous religions. So I just didn't expect that to have mm -hmm. permeated China. But apparently it did to the point that a guy uh, who couldn't pass his tests 
decided he was Jesus Christ's brother <laughs> and yeah. rose to the head of this. He, he started recruiting thousands and thousands and eventually millions of people to his cause mm. because, you know, no one has a job. Everyone's angry. They blame the imperial government. Mm. And for a guy like that who has total self-belief to the point that he thinks he's descended from God um, can step right in and gain tremendous power for himself. Mm. So uh, essentially he starts his own church first and tons of people start joining. And then he starts his own dynasty. Uh, and he's recruiting all these people who've lost their jobs. He marches forward with an army of 500,000 people, wow. half a million, mm-hmm. 100,000 of which were women. Wow. Because part of what he preached, which was totally revolutionary, was that men and women are equal in all things. Mm-hmm. So 20% of his army, 100,000 people, were female soldiers. I also had no idea this had happened. It was fascinating. So they start um, executing rich merchants and landlords. They burn deeds and loan records. They start sacking government offices. And then in Wuhan, they captured 10,000 naval vessels, vessels from the government, right? Whoa. So this, this force is starting to grow in power. It's getting serious. And um, in addition to the naval vessels, they seize 1 million tails of silver, a huge supply of grain to feed their army in Wuhan. So now they've got a lot of momentum and a lot of power and they go to march on the capital and they get within 100 miles of it. But that's where things kind of start to fall apart. Um, they start uh, fighting within their own ranks. The, you know, this guy thinks things should be done that way. This guy thinks things should be done that way. The generals start fighting. Um, one guy rebels against the main leader and he has to go and put down that rebellion. And the whole movement just kind of starts splitting up into a bunch of different pieces. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, that's where the Western powers kind of came into play. So originally the Western powers liked the Taiping Rebellion. They're like, oh, you're Christian? Us too. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and then the Taiping Rebellion said, oh, we want to open up more to the foreigners. They said, you want to open up? Great. We love that. And they're like, and we don't want any more opium. And the Western powers said, no. The, they, they didn't like that at all. Mm. So that was that was what turned them against the Taipings. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually had American mercenary, an American mercenary named... Uh, Frederick Townsend Ward. You know what a mercenary is? It's a soldier who fights for money. They, oh. don't, they don't represent their country. They represent whoever can pay them. Oh. So he was an American mercenary, and he was hired by uh, the Chinese to build a force which had 100 demobilized European officers, 200 Filipino sailors, and 4,000 Chinese recruits oh. that they trained in Western military techniques and armed with Western military rifles. So they actually took the field against the Taiping. Um, they scored a, a bunch of victories, and then uh, their leader was shot and killed. And then he gets replaced by this British officer named Charles G. Gordon. And this guy was hardcore. Like his, uh, his Chinese soldiers, usually when a victory was won, they went in and sacked the town. Do you know what it means to sack a town? It's when you basically take everyone's belongings, kill who you want, rape. You know, It's kind of the way war has been done, you know. In history up to this point but he wouldn't allow them to and when they insisted on it he started shooting his own men until they stopped yeah so he has kind of a great reputation and he goes on uh, to have further victories now again this wasn't the reason the Taiping rebellion failed or lots of reasons but it's kind of an interesting side note that we have these mercenary western adventurers tromping around china fighting wars at this time I i didn't know that so eventually um, that movement falls apart. Hong Xiuquan, how do you say it? Yeah, oh. Hong Xiuquan. Hong Xiuquan commits suicide oh. rather than be captured. 
and the imperial dynasty kind of limps on you know at this point the foreign powers they kind of want the imperial dynasty to continue because it's weak mm. because it gave in to all of their demands so they want to maintain you know right now they're making a lot of money they're happy with how things are um and yeah that's that's our section for today um, what we're going to get into next time is what's known as the self-strengthening movement. So there was, uh, uh the next emperor, Tongjur, uh-huh. you know him, he was a boy emperor and he started making a bunch of efforts to kind of, yes. um, reinvigorate the government uh-huh. to modernize, to, you know, do all the things they needed to do to come on equal footing with the Westerners. Mm. So we're going to talk about that. Yeah, but again, it, it's it's fascinating that there were these huge uprisings in China and that a lot of the events that took place within them kind of foreshadow the mm. communist revolution. A lot of the strategies that Mao used, people's war, you know, they, like uh, Mao's um, military operators would go into the villages. They would treat the people well. They would be respectful mm. to them. They would give them food. They would help them. And then when, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, military came looking for them, the, the average people would help these people who had treated them well and given them food and supported them. Yes. So that was kind of begun during this era. Mm. And again, the cycle of um, the repression of the Lao Baixing kind of resulting in explosive and violent revolution, uh, you know, that cycle starts here and brings us all the way up to the modern era, where still today pressure is being put on Xi Jinping by, you know, the economic situation internal to China. So, yeah, that's why we study history, because it's not just about the past. It's about the future, too. And these things, they tend to go in cycles and repeat themselves. Mm. So, yeah. Thanks for studying Asia's history. Yeah. We are so happy to hear that. Yeah, I find it fascinating. I love Chinese history. It's it's maybe my second favorite history subject. Yeah. We are thinking maybe we also buy a... America history book. Oh, great. And yeah. then we could study together. Uh-huh. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, American history is fascinating. Which mm-hmm. which period? Uh, All of it or any particular period you're interested in? I think the, the war between British. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Revolutionary War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one to study. It's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. Short, short history. Uh-huh. It's all thanks to the French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have done it without the French. Yeah, I see. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting characters. And if you guys are interested, I highly, highly recommend an HBO TV show mm-hmm. called John Adams. Have you ever heard of John Adams? Have you ever heard of this show? No. Uh, he is an American um, revolutionary and political figure. He was uh, became an American president after the, revolutionary, after the revolution. But he's played by um, Paul Giamatti, awesome American actor. It is a phenomenal series. It tells the whole story of the American Revolution. The first time I saw it, I didn't sleep that night. I just watched the whole thing from beginning to end. It's like, I don't know, eight, 12 hours, something like that of content. So if you guys are interested in the American Revolutionary Story, highly recommend that show. Okay. Mm. The show first. (laughs) Start there. Get get into the details of the books later. Mm. Cool. So anything else on your guys' minds or did, did we do it? Yeah, I think that's all. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure. I always love talking history. Love yeah. talking uh, about your struggles to deep fry uh, <laughs> delicious sweet potato balls. And uh, yeah, so let, let's all hope for an improving relationship between China and the U.S. Yes, and earn the big money. And earn the big money. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.